1: the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River.
0: And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabeg people.
1: On today's podcast, we talk about the Aswang Project controversy, and then later on, we talk about cultural appropriation. But before we do that, Sigs, what have you been up to pop culture-wise? You know it's so funny? I literally just <laughs> filled in my notes
0: on this, and embarrassingly and i talked about it last season mm. i watched season two quickly a binge of the babysitters club and season two was pretty great and have a lot of respect and ryan o'connell is one of the writers on the show from special and they totally accelerated the show they changed it they took some of the, like, the normal titles of the books and changed it up and it was it's quite interesting and i I sort of like the jokes they made into it and mm. it was an interesting second season. Now, you know what? I'm a child of the eighties and nineties and I knew people in my grade school right. at that Red Baby Sisters Club. And the reason why we've talked about it before is that one of the characters, Claudia Kishi, is Japanese and she was Asian in mm-hmm. a young adult novel that we never saw, you know, Filipino or Asian leads in like in young adult novels, and she right. was this cool girl that was into art and stuff, and right now, whatever, they released a series of on Netflix, and they've sort of, like, modernized everything, so the whole cast isn't all white, it's all mixed, it's diverse, and even with Claudia, they talked about just really great stories, and she loses her grandmother, which wasn't a surprise. And even the title of the book, Claudia and the Sad Goodbye, was one of the titles. And her sweet grandmother had passed away and she taught her how to make Japanese tea. And she talked about, like, a funeral and what happens and the culture with it. It was just really interesting share, right? So... Hmm. It was just a really fun little quick binge and i, I mentioned that because i have a good friend named heather mitchell that i went to grade school and high school with and she loved the stories and for that to last a long time from the 80s to right now the 2020s and it, for it to evolve is just super
1: interesting and, and makes i'm me sure just it has the like nerd. timeless <laughs> themes too you know in terms of just probably inclusion feeling part of a group a community and problem solving right like these babysitting I, club is. stuff is about problem solving at the end of the and
0: day even at different levels right like one babysitter was watching this kid that used to be a TV person, like in the eighties. Right. They right. fast forward it and he ended up being a YouTuber.
1: Wow. They really adjusted. <laughs> and they updated and, like, it. That's a cool update. Yeah.
0: And even like one of the main characters, Christy, her mom was dealing with pregnancy at 40, trying to, whether or not you want to ha- grow your family. And they really did it in a way where it's never talked about, like about going down that road and having a mixed family and, you know, having kids. It's it's not as easy at an older age for a parent. And, I loved how they touched about it. I'm like, oh, that's... You never see those type of discussions. I mean, and, like, the mom is played by Alicia Silverstone. Right. Right? right. Like, when you have all these people that, oh, we know them. Like, they're our age. And yeah, yeah. It's just really interesting. And I just like the way that they've sort of, like, fast-forwarded and, like, made everything very current. And they even had, like, one of the sitters had a babysitting charge that was transgender and identified as female. Mm. The shy babysitter, Marianne, this was last season, went up and stood up for her and said, please refer to her as not using the dead name that to go to. And I thought Excellent. that was like for a 10 year old and a 13 yeah. year old to really be respectful. I was like, wow, this is just, it's great to see these type of stories. So what have you been up to? Have you been on a Netflix link too? Netflix <laughs> yes. binge too? I'm gathering? So
1: after we had our episode taping with Sam from the Lost Shaman podcast, yes. just recent episode, she talked about Midnight Mass and how she was binging that. And so that piqued my curiosity And I totally binged through it. And it was so fascinating to watch. Now, listeners, you have to know, I'm not like a horror fan of any (laughs) sort. And so it took a lot for me to watch. But I think it was just interesting watching the use of Catholic imagery, iconography, and mythology being used in a horror-filled way. And I thought it had an interesting commentary on it. And I just thought, wow, like... What is the saying about religion and how horror filled and violent it can be? So I thought it was really excellent. It was well done. It's too bad it's a limited series. Like I'm sure that there could have been other things to explore, but that's fine, right? Like I think Flanagan needed to tell his story in a very short number of episodes. So, so that was how many episodes be- were there, Quia? I think it was like seven or eight. I can't remember exactly.
0: But Did it's it close in- when it went to the eighth episode? Was it like? Did it close fully or was it open yeah, to some else? Yeah, I mean, else?
1: it pretty much closed fully. There is okay. one possibility of it, you know, going on. And if you go on to the Twitterverse, people have theories on how okay. it could happen. And that Flanagan has an upcoming, another limited series coming out called The Midnight Club. And he <clears throat> did also all those haunting house Hill and Blythe Manor stuff. And so that those two were like loosely connected. And so there Mm -hmm. are all these different Easter eggs and possible connections. So there could be a connection for the upcoming Midnight Club because it reduplicates Midnight. So Mm -hmm. people are just saying, or maybe there's going to be a a sequel to this. I think it's probably going to have much more of a titular relationship instead, but Mm -hmm. either way it was very satisfying and it was very interesting to see this fictional island town take on a horror filled Catholic filled, thriller slash horror and so it was thoroughly entertaining and it was hard to not binge actually is what I found. Yeah I just wanted to see what was going to happen next. Sam was I guess
0: Sam's prolific. Yes so
1: so thank you for that recommendation Sam so I totally binged it right after we had finished taping episode 403 and then the other thing I ended up watching just recently which is probably touring for the entire month of October so by the time this particular episode drops it's probably going to finish its run is Night of the Living Drag show. Oh, Um, past participants and contestants on RuPaul's Drag Race put together a Halloween special. And I (laughs) saw yesterday or two days ago actually, it was yesterday that I saw it. And it was day two like the first day was actually in Boston. So we were like the second date, and then the third date is out in Vancouver, and then they go to Seattle and then Los Angeles, and then later like New York and something like that. Yeah, it was okay, you know, it wasn't thrilling to see like it was nice to see the crowd get into it but <clears throat> they had a lot of technical hiccups along oh, the no. way <clears throat> yeah and so i was a little bit disappointed and every time there was a technical hill hiccup, I ended up kind of getting lost in all of that. So I looked at the internet and kind of saw the, the reaction. It was interesting. The young crowd was very forgiving but the older crowd was kind of like, like, oh, Yeah, uh uh-uh, <laughs> right? Like, you know, there were <laughs> gaps between sets and stuff like that. And they had a oh. problem getting over the Canadian border. And so they kept talking of about that throughout. Of course they, they, did. they, were, they were, And I just thought to myself, I bet you they didn't have the right visas or something like that is what I was thinking. So, in any event, it was really, it was fascinating to watch I don't know that I would see it again, but Mm -hmm. I'm glad that I participated in it. But it was kind of interesting, like, getting all this information off the Internet about people's reaction, which is somewhat related to today's main topic, right, Mm -hmm. which is the Aswan Project controversy. And I know, Sigzy, you and I talked about this in August when we were doing our retreat planning our year four season here. And just before we kind of get into the Aswan Project controversy, You know, with the advent of the internet, I've been looking for history on the Philippines and information about our culture. Prior to all that used to be really hard and difficult, but today it's really easy in terms of looking for that information. But prior to the internet, it would really be me asking my parents about our culture or finding anything about our culture at the local library. And of course, I would always enjoy finding out the information. I never actually felt that it was ever complete, right? Because I think partly from my parents, who probably weren't able to answer all my Questions and anything that I did find in the library, I, you know, very much understood that it was coming from a North American Western lens or perspective. You know, it wasn't until 1986, when I was in the Philippines and one of my grade school teachers had said, you know, since you're going to the Philippines at an off-cycle time, in other words, right in the heart of the school year, he had tasked me with actually doing a history project at the Philippines. Oh, And it was fantastic because I got to get all these books about revolutionaries and about the Philippines and about uh, Philippine mythology. And I was just so entranced. So I got to go to the national bookstore and different other bookstores and collected all these books with my Tita Marlene, actually, ironically enough. And got first hand information about our culture again written by and written for Filipinos and then did this wonderful project that I'll never forget it was actually quite a pivotal project and then I think sigs you know that every time I go to the Philippines I just pick up more you know with tons of books <laughs> yeah. I think on my Instagram feed it was like I like I had this whole huge it's just stack. Yeah, yeah like a stack of books you know about like academic stuff that you just can't get here unfortunately how about you sigs like how would you find your information about our culture before the internet arrived on I was
0: introduced at a young age, around four years old, of what the library was. And my mom would take me all the time. You could travel off our places with books. But I remember formally, I, we used to do speeches every year. And my mom was thinking, hey, do you want to do a speech on the Philippines? I was like, okay. I started to do research on it at the library. And mm. obviously, like... We were young. Right. So this is like the 80s, around 86, if not a little bit earlier, where, OK, uh, where will I go? Right. And it's usually the geography section. Right. But right? it wasn't even about culture. It was just geography. So yeah. picking up these books would have like it was very different. It was like going through the Dewey Decimal System, like, like OK, Philippines, and then looking for the section and would be like Asian countries. And then the Philippines would have maybe a chapter or two. But <laughs> right. it was very sanitized. It was very factual. There was nothing about really the culture. Like, they were telling me, like, oh, okay, so the Philippines has these many islands, and like old school Kuya, like the capital is Quezon City. <laughs> Not true. Like, right? That's old yes, school. Yeah, that's really old books school and stuff. information. But it, to me, it felt very sanitized. I'm like, I want to know more about the culture. Like, I don't even think the book I remember or whatever. Like, Quickly talked about the harvested, the archipelagos, like, but nothing about the food, right? Like, the real big culture, right? You know, and also being younger, what did we have access to? Encyclopedias, right? Yes. So we'd page through and it would just have the technicals of like population, um, the languages they speak, etc. Like, very sanitized. And let's be honest, who writes an encyclopedia? This is a Filipino person. It's not a Filipino It's person. not. Of course not. And for some reason, I didn't end up doing a speech on it, but I had these books where I was just reading about it. I'm like, I want to hear about stories. I want to hear about those other things. And obviously, in St. Catharines, Ontario, when the population was like barely 100,000 people, right. my library's not going to have a big section on Filipino books. Of course not.
1: Well, and I and, would have to say, too, like before you go on, that even in Toronto— even in Scarborough growing up, like yeah. even though there was like an emerging Filipino population, it wasn't like that there was like prolific information on the Philippines. And very similarly, everything that I did find, it was relegated to a chapter or That's to right. a paragraph or even a footnote at times.
0: And mm-hmm. as things evolved, I mean... Aside from our families, I remember our family being part of the Filipino-Canadian Association in Niagara, FCAM, mm, yeah. and there was Tagalog classes. So I remember being about eight or nine years old and being with like the Filipino community. And I remember like vividly where they had all of us going to a high school at around, on a Friday night from six to nine, and we would have Tagalog classes, mm. right? So they split up the older kids that were high school and the younger right. kids, and they would go over and they had this woman that would teach us Tagalog and stuff and... And that's where I would learn culture, per se. Not just from my parents, but that was about it. And that only lasted a couple months. And that's where I did that speech for that Filipino Christmas party. Mm-hmm. And I did yes. that you know, Pasco de Mara thing. <laughs> but I wanted to know more. And it was just basically my parents and a little bit about the library. But like you said, as things evolved and right. the internet became much more. And even, like, I think the internet became big, like, when I was in 12th grade, right? 11th, right. 12th grade. And then university, we were able to access it. It's changed so much the access and, totally, you know, getting there.
1: Yeah. And I know that by the time the internet arrived, I was already into my first degree at this point, but believe it or not, mm-hmm. I ended up reveling in the academic articles that I could find on the internet databases with respect to library databases and mm-hmm. academic journals and then discovering all of this stuff. And so I'd be reading all my other stuff for my program and then I would find all this other stuff on the Philippines and I would just start reading it from an anthropological perspective in some ways. As the internet started to evolve, some of this would be kind of interpreted. And then, of course, today it's not just like library databases or the internet in general. It's also information is being shared through social media, which Mm -hmm. is also where I get some information about our culture or questions about our culture. And so any query that I sometimes ask Google (laughs) will have like a list of websites and Google and all our social media accounts are all kind of linked up because we've given them all these permissions. And interesting enough, they track your history and I was suggested to follow many other accounts of people really Reconnecting with their roots. So there's a number yeah. of Instagram accounts that I have, and amongst them was actually the Aswang project. So for any of our listeners that don't know, if you go into your Instagram or social media account, if you search it on Instagram, you'll find the Aswang project, and it'll link up to his website. And the person, his or the person that I'm referring to, is Jordan Clark, and it was created in 2006, and it came after. The creation of a documentary called A Swung Phenomena. It originally started off as the Swung Project, but it later was fully developed into the Swung Phenomena. And it became a repository for all the information that he found. And it became a place to share the diverse folklore and mythologies of the Philippines. It's interesting because since 2006, if you look at it, it's so rich with information. And it points to three general things. One is is the resources that Jordan Clark found to base his posts upon. So he has a variety of different posts and essays, if you will. The other is, is is that he has like opinion pieces on his main website that hint to it on his social media and then point to the main essays on his main website, and then he also like references books or articles or other. Instagram accounts or other mm-hmm. Aswang driven websites as well. And then he also points to pop culture on Filipino folklore. So, for example, like he's introduced me to Gods Must Be Crazy podcast yeah. or Tresse. So, Terese, yeah. these interesting things that I had no knowledge of following this account led me to these interesting pop culture references. So as I said, this whole resource or repository of information came after he was doing a project or a documentary and then did this huge Folsom documentary. And he had like, I guess, a Facebook presence as well. Mm -hmm. And it became a resource even in the Philippines on Philippine mythology. So any Filipino university student looking to get information on mythology and folklore, his website ended up serving as sometimes as a resource for some of these, if you will, even academic scholars. Mm -hmm. And his documentary is easily accessible and is free. And so people can refer to it. And in his documentary, did he talk to a number of experts or people interested in, and deeply steeped in Filipino folklore and mythology. And and this is important because first of all, like this information is not necessarily easy to come by. So what he was gaining access to was finding firsthand sources on these topics like Philippine mythology, Filipino folklore, Filipino supernatural stories. And What's fascinating is, is is that people in the Philippines knew of Jordan Clark's identity. However, Mm -hmm. Filipinos in the diaspora had a very different experience and very similar to mine, right? Which is, you know, again, Filipinos wanting to reconnect with their roots around the Mm Philippines, especially around Philippine mythology and being brought to his website and to his Instagram account. The way he describes himself is just purely as a Canadian, but I think it's easy to assume that he might be a Filipino-Canadian. And I think sometimes when someone says, when there's kind of like, if you will, all this knowledge about the Philippines, but the person has like a very Anglo- last name. We think a number of things like perhaps maybe this person's ancestry might be Filipino through one's mother and one's father might right. be exactly. white or Canadian or whatever the case may be. And I'm sure that that's what had happened for a few people that had turned into a controversy at some point. So controversy erupted when Filipino Americans in California had discovered that he was white and started to demand a response in and around May of this year. And SIGS, You know, I remember just checking my Instagram feed and it was like all of these like Twitter fights and all of these Instagram DM fights were starting to occur. And it was like, what is happening? And I didn't know actually what was happening. And I don't know if any of your accounts that you follow were impacted, but certainly there was like quite a, a conversation or quite a fight that was starting to brew. And so... In this controversy, they were saying he should say that he's white or come out as white. And so Jordan Clark had then decided to post a response where he clarified his identity. So Mm -hmm. he changed his bio on his website and clarified. It
0: has it, right? Like specifically.
1: That's right. right? So when you go to the Aswang Project page, it said that he was a Canadian, but then now specifically it says, I'm a white Canadian of Scottish settlers. And in his response, he clarifies his family, which he has a Filipina wife and of course then a biracial child and more Mm -hmm. details about the project outlining and chronicling kind of like how he's come to it. And he had said that he wasn't really intending on trying to hurt or to deceive anybody. But what some detractors had said was, is, is that he didn't make it clear either that he was white. And a lot of people started to feel deceived, if you will. So, unfortunately, instead of actually calming things down, this response had actually inflamed Filipinos in the diaspora further who felt that he was being both tokenistic towards his Filipino wife and child and using that information as currency to absolve himself of any wrongdoing. And we'll probably unpack this a little bit more, but the controversy then erupted even more further when... Elsa Valmediano, who was an academic in a legal mind, was publishing her book, had then shared her exchanges that she's had with Jordan Clark, who apparently was trying to promote her project and book that she was soon to be publishing. And she said that she had felt, again, deceived by him and never did Jordan Clark once actually say that he was white or take any time to clarify his identity to her. Okay. So when I've looked at these posts and it's like, "Mm, that's true, he didn't. He didn't necessarily do that. And the other thing is is that Jordan Clark had some opportunities to actually say, actually, you know, my wife's Filipina and I'm white or I'm white Canadian and I just take a, a really strong interest in Philippine mythology. So what that ended up doing was Elsa Valmediano ended up actually publishing this huge essay that then catalyzed a hunt to demand to have Jordan Clark share his image and personal information. But then this was the crazy part, if I can kind of say this, Sigs, is that, of course, Jordan Clark goes silent at this point. Mm -hmm. And then it started to spread to other Instagram accounts that also work towards trying to reconnect people back to their Filipina, X, Filipino roots, mm-hmm. where the community essentially said, are you Jordan Clark to these other websites and are you hiding and can you prove your identity to, to us? Whoa. And it was like, wow. So there was this whole hunt to authenticate everybody who was trying to do some type of cultural good in terms of, again, reconnecting people in... The diaspora with respect to their Filipino roots. And then this just then erupted even further and led to a misunderstanding between Filipinos in the Philippines, who again knew who Jordan Clark was, and diasporic Filipinos, Filipinas, and Filipinex individuals who didn't know because it didn't seem so, if you will, evident that Jordan Clark was white. And so... This controversy just raises a whole number of points and a whole number of questions that maybe we can unpack for the next couple of minutes, which is, is that did Jordan Clark really infiltrate a sacred space with respect to Philippine mythology? And is he really profiteering from this endeavor? Now, some comments that have been made on the internet is, is that actually no one's making any money off of it. Yeah,
0: Let's the write. article from the new I can't remember her name, Cynthia Newhard. I think so, or house. Yeah, she, Christina Newhart, and she broke it down. Mm-hmm. Like, how much it's cost to run the site, how much it goes there. He's like, he isn't profiting from it.
1: Yeah, and I looked I at those numbers too, yeah. and when we think about it, like, you and I are not profiting off oh, of no. our little <laughs> endeavor here. Yeah, But, you know, we're glad to do this passion project, and that was the other thing, is is that Jordan Clark at some point in his apology response, or accounting response, if you will, was just saying that this was a passion project. And then, I guess the other questions that kind of come up is, is can we dismiss the resource that he's created that a lot of people have relied on and of course Elsa Valmidiano for example would have us know that you have to reread his posts and his opinions and his essays from the view of a western lens mm-hmm. and so it is a very very complicated discussion that has kind of arisen from all of this just like taking a whole monologue here i don't know if i you just have-
0: When you introduced it to me, I was like, oh, and automatically when you search this, you don't even get the Aswang Project. You get the open letter Mm. from Elsa and then the thoughts from Christina Neward. And then I actually went to the website. When I went to the website, I'm like, oh, I I feel like the correction was made on the splash page, right? At the bottom, it just has Jordan Clark and a picture of him, like a character, Right. Like Christian character of explaining, you know, where he was born, his immigration story, and like he's interested in Philippine myth. Forklar began in two thousand four, and he talked about it's difficult to track down resources on the topic. And he founded this project in two thousand six. And I think obviously this must have been added post
1: the whole controversy, whole yes, controversy. Right? And sure. He's been
0: doing it what since two thousand six? It's a long time, right? And yeah. it was just this past May. And like you mentioned before, create like you've outlined that the information he gathers is not just his. This is from consulting other people and stuff feeding into it. Is that correct? Well, and like Like, work
1: that he's done when he's gone to the Philippines, he's had mm -hmm. access to books that are really hard to find. He's, he shared those resources. He shared those resources willingly and has put them on there. And this is what's been really fascinating is is that, okay, I get it. He wasn't necessarily so forthcoming about all of this. Yeah, Perhaps maybe he could have, actually said, you know, I am, again, a white Canadian with Scottish ancestry, really interested in this topic. And I'm here to want to share all of what I've been finding with the world. And the world has actually visited his website and has actually taken information and used that information and people have learned it. Mm -hmm. I think... People feel deceived because they felt that he could have been more forthcoming. I think what ended up happening, though, was this kind of need to want to authenticate identity. And that was, I guess, probably was also problematic and complicated because I think other Instagram accounts, again, trying to reconnect people to their culture felt really pressured to give up their privacy in some ways. And that's something else that some of the open letters have talked about that are, if you will, not necessarily for Jordan Clark, but pro-Jordan Clark, if you will, where he's a person that wants some privacy too. Isn't he entitled to that? But then how much do you actually then say to people, this is my identity while I'm actually talking about culture? Which kind of comes to our cultural appropriation topic, which is another major question that this controversy raises was was jordan clark a cultural tourist or a cultural collector and was our culture being appropriated and you know makes us ask the question what is cultural appropriation sigs i'm sure you've heard this kind of topic of cultural appropriation before we've briefly touched on it in other podcasts
0: yeah we did we talked about it when retchy was on but like You have a great definition, and let's share that first with our listeners, and I think we're going to digress into it. It's a really great definition because we've seen it, and us growing, I think it's almost symbolized by trends. Yes. The trendiness or whatever. Go ahead with the definition. And that's the problem,
1: I think, with cultural appropriation, if done really incorrectly, is is that it looks like a trend which ends up disrespecting things. But the actual definition or a definition to kind of guide our discussion on is is, is that cultural appropriation is the use of any type of element or artifact or concept of a non-dominant culture, which then reinforces oppressive stereotypes, right? Right. And so we think about, and I've seen this many times, Victoria's Secret models coming down a runway using a sacred object where suddenly like an indigenous war headpiece is being used to accessorize the lingerie and say that it's, quote unquote, sexy. That is cultural appropriation and The impact is both insensitive and disrespectful. And I would say that in an ever-increasing world, cultural appropriation is bound to happen. Like maybe hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago where cultures were more separated, that would not have happened. But it's bound to happen. And in fact, not all cultural appropriation is bad. Or otherwise, how would we have gotten pizza, you know, Mm -hmm. is one way to think about it, or how would the Italians have, have ever invented spaghetti if they had not actually, if you will, built upon what they found with respect to Asian and Chinese cultures specifically with respect to noodles, or how would we as Filipinos have created Filipino spaghetti if we didn't know what spaghetti was and built upon that to create it uniquely our own. And so cultural appropriation, if done right, can actually have some really epiphanic results or some wonderful results in some ways. But there are a lot of pop culture examples that have gone wrong. And this is where I rely on you. Right? Oh, like, for the
0: Pop culture <laughs> examples. That's, that's what I'm here for. And uh, I'm gladly playing that role. And just showing my age, I have like examples from before. Like, I don't even know. There used to be a show called I Dream of Genie. Mm, yes. And an astronaut played by Larry Hagman catches a genie in a bottle, not played by someone, you know, of like Arabic descent or it was played by a blonde woman, right. Barbara Eden. And I used to love that show. And the genie would be very submissive and just serving the man and right. not a great example. But, you know, a comedy show from like the 70s. And then the one that I clearly remember and listeners, take the journey with me. There used to be a sitcom called Give Me a Break from the 80s and it starred Nell Carter. Nell Carter is a beautiful black actress who like, won Tonys for Dreamgirls, a wonderful right. actress. And she was basically like not the nanny, but like the house mother of a home of a white family. And yes. She was very funny and she played off very well with the head of the household who's a chief of police. And There was an episode where one of the daughters of the chief police named Sam was very mad at Nell and she decided to have the, the younger kid played by Joey Lawrence performing blackface on purpose. Mm, yes, yes. In front of a black audience. And I was like, whoa. Right. And I already I didn't even need to know any other background. You just know it was wrong. Because yeah. the face is seen by all the characters, Nell Carter, or whatever. What you did to hurt me, that's wrong. Like it's just glaringly like from a show from 1984 and me being 45 years old, I glaringly remembered that. Wow. Oh, like about blackface being wrong. As we fast forward, cultural appropriation, like, we see it in movies a lot. And this is why, you know, our podcast exists. We, we're searching for representation. We don't really see it. So right. when we have movies like Ghost in the Shell, which usually should have Asian actors, with the main star being Scarlett Johansson. Right. And then another movie, Aloha, where the main character was a lead with a redhead that's supposed to be Hapa, who is also of Asian descent and Hawaiian, played by Emma Stone. Yes. Now, if you do recall in 2019, Sandra Oh did a call out, like, oh, it's so great. The Crazy Rich Asians came out I and mean, we haven't seen a cast of Asians since Ghost in the Shell and Aloha. And you remember Emma Stone yelled, I'm sorry in right. the background.
1: She did. To do the,
0: which is jokingly, but and I've seen the coverage before where she's like, That was wrong. I shouldn't have been casting that role. We should have like searched for it. Where it's almost, when I think of cultural appropriation, I always think of someone taking something and trying yes. to make it theirs that's not authentically theirs in the first place. And right. you do note that with the Victoria's Secret model and stuff. And
1: Yeah, I think that that's another good way to maybe look at cultural appropriation. It's very much taking something that's not there. And I think really what you should be doing is actually... Getting inspiration and then building upon that, as opposed to taking it and being really sensitive in terms of how it's being used. You know, just can't be a, an accessory just so that it looks "quote unquote" cool. It's got to be more than that. You got to. I think Jenny Evans and Quartz from The Atlantic suggest a number of different things, which is, is that you need to pay homage and acknowledge origins if you're going to seek inspiration from another culture and recognize what's sacred. And again, don't adopt it as excess. And also, keep in mind that culture is fluid and not static, like what I had just alluded to earlier. You have to share and build upon, which really means, as I said earlier, to take inspiration. The other thing is, is is that remember that appropriation is not a substitute for diversity. So just because you've, Uh you know, culturally appropriated, sometimes what matters is making sure that you have people from all walks of life and all social locations and ethnic backgrounds and cultural backgrounds there for the taking, so to speak. And then I would also say, too, sharing the wealth. Sharing the wealth is what, you know, the Atlantic would say is, it not only just benefits the person who is seeking inspiration from another culture, but that other culture also benefits in some way, shape, or form, such as sharing their message in terms of why that particular tradition or culture or accessory is used. You were going to add something, I think.
0: Yeah, you know, Kuya, I really like the points that you're bringing up because it's a great conversation to have. Like, can it be done right? What do we as a society need to be aware of? And last summer in 2020, May 2020, there was a DC... Wine bar that was going to be called Barcada. It was a I restaurant remember you in DC, telling me that. and I remember saying, "Did you see this article?" And it was a bar with yes. four white guys, right. and they wanted to do this. And there are some fantastic Filipino restaurants in DC and in New York, like Chismis and stuff. And a lot of people spoke up, and these four guys ended up renaming the bar. They said, "You know, they did a formal apology. You know what? This isn't." We, what we're doing is we're going to search for a different name. They thought because the word bar was in it, and they could mm-hmm. identify. But again, no one who of Filipino descent and. I think a lot of those who are Filipino in the restaurant business there, they sort of cited the renaming of this bar, not using the word the name Barcada, which again, by the way, is a great name for a bar. <laughs> it's a really great and name. It's great. Right. Uh, uh, damn right? it! Like I, someone should jump on it. They called it like a teachable moment that could lead to courageous conversations and much more mindful decisions. If you're going to use our name, connect with us, make it a more meaningful connection. Just like you said, Kuya, that will celebrate the both of our cultures. And that's exactly what type of things you you just sidelined. So
1: imagine if there were, were four white guys that called a bar barcada, but then they made it a very welcoming opening space for Filipinos and somehow promoted and elevated Filipino businesses, then I think it would be a different story altogether. I don't know that it would necessarily be bad cultural appropriation. It would be actually, oh, like, use this as a platform. The equity Mm -hmm. that we've created to kind of create this bar we call Barcada, but it's for everyone and carries the spirit of friendship and neighborly love and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Then it would be a different story, as opposed to like them just purely profiting on it. So it is about kind of sharing the wealth, and that it's bi-directional. You know, it is not just taking from another, but actually sharing with another, and then doing something in kind and in return. So I think that that's kind of a way to kind of think about as we lead to the fixing of the week. So can I ask a question? Um, You can ask a question. I
0: do have a question for you, Kuya.
1: How? And I'm going to ask for all the listeners
0: because my wife actually had a really good question on this. So how do you know it's cultural appropriation? Like, I'm very conscious. One of my big memories, I remember being part of like a diversity group or previous job in the early 2000s and I had a chance to go to the Sky Dome and I got to see a powwow. Right. And it was fantastic and I remember the group had told me they go, you can take pictures and people, don't call the traditional dress and what they're wearing is costumes, not costumes. It's formal right. dress and I was like, in my head, I'm like, oh, that's a good lesson. So, yeah. could we have a question my wife had asked me, she says, Siggy, you know, your mom gave me like a terno kind of barong. I'm like, yeah, because right. remember, I wore it out and stuff. I'm like, yeah, she goes, is that cultural appropriation? And I'm like, hmm. Is it? And I was just thinking, in the sense of like, she just wore this lovely barong that my mom got that was yellow. And I, I think we went out for our anniversary, mm. like early anniversary. And she happened to just simply wear it, like, dressed up. No big deal. And if should had gone to a wedding, a Filipino wedding, she would have worn it. Right. Two. How do you find that line where it's a respectful? But because my wife, there's no disrespect because someone had said, Oh, what are you wearing? I'm wearing a barong. You know, my in-laws have given it to me. Like, how do you find that
1: respectful line? Yeah, uh, I think in this particular example, it's the fact that it was given to Emily, and in some ways that's an invitation into the culture and into taking that. Mm-hmm particular piece of our culture and then kind of making it her own in some ways. Mm -hmm. I think we got to ask ourselves the question of, is it perpetuating something disrespectful or a stereotype of sorts? Mm -hmm. And we have to ask ourselves, what kind of impact is this going to have? And am I willing to engage in the discussion? Because if Emily said... If Emily just took this off the rack and Mm. then wore it and said, oh, that's a... And someone in in our culture said to her, that's a beautiful turno. And she says, oh, thanks, I just picked this off the rack. Then that comes off as really insensitive and very Mm. unkind. As opposed to, oh, this was actually a gift from my mother-in-law. And, Mm. you know, this represents whatever of her, you know, particular Mm. heritage and stuff like that. And I'm so proud to wear it. You know, because that's a different story, (laughs) right? And I answered my question when I just said the word costume.
0: So now, folks and listeners, you probably see, you know, when people are dressing up for Halloween, right? It's a costume. We're like, we're having fun or whatever. Is that what you're doing? Yes. In those senses. And that's, I just really answered my question. This is really good. We're talking about this, that, you know, people more have a better keen eye on when they're in dress for like Halloween. Yeah. And
1: so. Yeah. For Halloween, then it's like for fun and for exactly. other things. But then is that really the spirit of what you're wearing it for? And it's Exactly. Been, so if, you know, if, if someone was wearing a terno because they're like, oh, I'm being the average Filipino for Halloween, it's like yeah. that's really unsettling. And that really is dismissive. And it distills our culture down to being something fun and trick-or-treaty. You know, yeah. and that's terrible. That's terrible in some ways. But wearing a terno, let's say, in at a particular...
0: A wedding event or a baptism. That's right.
1: You know, then it's they're paying homage in some ways. And I think think that that's really important. And so kind of coming back to what Quartz and Jenny Alvins had said around these are ways of doing it right. Yeah, paying homage and acknowledging the origins of what you might be culturally appropriating. But then that's an example of it being done well. But if it's like I'm doing this for coolness or, you know, because it's fun... I don't know, right? Like, most likely that's probably problematic on a number of different levels. So I don't know if that answers your question. Hopefully that answers your question. No, I'm
0: glad we're good to talk about this. And I'm sure, you know what, there's probably listeners out there just probably wanting to know that question, you know, answer that question too. I truly appreciate that. It was coming into my brain where I was like, hmm.
1: Yeah. And then the other part is that dialogue piece, which is also part of our fixing of the week. This is that imagine what kind of dialogue you'll have when someone asks you about it. And if it isn't about paying homage or respect or acknowledging the origins, I would think twice about appropriating that piece of culture from a non-dominant culture at that point. And I think what the fixing of the week is really about is about preventing bad cultural appropriation or insensitive cultural appropriation. So, the way to do that is make sure that you can engage in a dialogue if you're going to do something that culturally appropriates another culture's artifacts or accessories or traditions. And then we also have to meditate on these other questions, which is what part do I play in contributing and perpetuating you know, the culture and, and mm. how do I build upon it and how do I deepen whatever yeah. it is that I'm seeking inspiration from? Let More of a meditation and probably less of a fixing, but... If you can't build upon whatever it is that you're appropriating, perhaps maybe it's not worth doing. And that's something really important to think about. People think about wanting to appropriate something from another culture. So I don't know if you've got anything else to add. Before.
0: No, I, I think What's that's about? well put. I, I think you gave a lot of food for thought. And got, I was able to ask some really interesting questions. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I'll take us out.
1: Please take us out.
0: We love email. We want to hear what you guys think. So please email us at hollow, hollow pop dot at gmail.com. The hollow, hollow podcast is available on all podcast platforms, rate us and leave a review. You can find us on social media, Twitter, our handles at hollow, hollow pop
1: and on Instagram at hollow, hollow pup culture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chael Turingen. And then we'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you soon guys.